Welcome to the Inquisitive Tourist. My name is Nate Ralph and thank you for joining me. For those of you already listening, welcome back. And if you've just started, welcome to an ever-growing community of listeners. We're now in 47 countries. And for this episode, uh, those of you in France and Martinique are going to really love it because of the French connection. But then again, so will the rest of you. A beautiful episode is in store. All over the world, in almost every culture, the city of Paris features in movies, theatre productions, songs, famous cuisine and popular culture. It's a romantic getaway in every sense of the word that people dream of. Today, I'm going to speak to the guy who started the EarfulTower.com. He's the owner of the award-winning Earful Tower podcast about all things France and Paris. His name is Oliver G. Oliver, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me on, Nate. It is a thrill to be here. Thank you for coming on and, and making the time to speak to me, Oliver. I know you're a very busy man, so I, I really appreciate it. And I'm sure many of the guests are going to love hearing uh, what you have to say. I'm excited about it. And congratulations to you on being in 47 countries. That's almost 50. And uh, from one podcaster to another, 50 is the big celebration. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. So yeah, Oliver, thanks for coming on. Now, your accent is very clearly uh, is Australian or Aussie, but I can't place exactly where in Australia it's from. Do you really think it's very clearly Australian? I'm I'm not sure. Like some people have no idea where I'm from, or are you just good with accents? <laughs> well, I'm 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 quite a traveller, um, so I'm I'm moderately good with accents, but uh, yeah, maybe right. not the best. <laughs> I can do it. For I you. think. Um, I, <laughs> well, we could maybe get into that at the end, but um, absolutely, I mean, I'm interested to hear. But my um my accent's a bit of a weird one because I grew up all over Australia. Like I was born in Melbourne lived in Sydney, spent a lot of time in Perth and, and elsewhere on the eastern coast. Uh, but then I spent like five years in Sweden. And I think what sort of messed up my accent a little bit is that in Sweden, they all speak such excellent English, but it's not perfect. So if you spoke with the speed that you and I are speaking now, Nate, um, you might leave some Swedes behind. So I think I slowed down my the way that I spoke. And then when I moved to France like seven or eight years ago, I slowed it down even more. And so when I'm, I think it just affected the way that I speak a little bit. And and when you slow any accent down or any speech down, the accent fades away a little bit. So I'm not surprised you couldn't guess exactly where I'm from. But the answer, I guess, is all over Australia. Okay, all over. And which part of Sweden uh, did you stay in when you were there for five years? I was in uh, Uppsala at first and then Stockholm for the for the majority of it, okay. uh, so both on the east side there. Beautiful country. Yeah. I mean, I, I went to Gothenburg once and uh, I know exactly what you're talking about, how many people, well, basically everyone actually I came across speaks great English, but with a very distinct accent. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so I, I know what you're talking about. It's a lovely accent. It's very, it's very mellifluous, very like up and down. It's like a song. I love it. Mm, mm. Yeah, they say that about the uh, Brazilian Portuguese as well. You know, they say it's quite melodious. It's almost, especially the people from uh, Rio de Janeiro, you know, it's almost like they're singing. Um, and mm. yeah, the same can be true of, of Sweden. So uh, that's, and how did you end up in Sweden then for five years? I uh, I met a Swedish woman. Right. Who, who's not, she's not the Swedish woman who became my wife, uh, <laughs> who I met soon and soon after actually. But I went over there for, for that, got a job that, that kept me there. I worked as a journalist. So I went over there with no, I didn't speak Swedish. I didn't have a job. I didn't know what I was doing really. And then I, uh, I sort of applied myself, learned Swedish, mm. uh, really well, actually enough to get a job enough to, I learned Swedish well enough to study in university in Swedish. 
And I did that within a year, which is crazy, but it's an easier language to learn than, than a lot of, you know, way easier than like Russian or Japanese or something. Mm. So, um, yeah, I did that. I was working as a journalist and then that job as a journalist led me to France uh, several years later. And, and here I am still. So when you went to university, did you study journalism? Was that your degree or? Mm, no, I didn't actually, but I studied, um, I studied like English and English literature and uh, French as well. Although, like weird, like when you study language in university, it's so different. Like I honestly think that you can learn a lot more language from spending, you know, time on the streets of that country, you know, solving problems. And even if that problem is just how to get a, you know, a coffee that you want exactly or, you know, how to complain about something or how to get it, you know, just solving a problem can teach you so much more than learning all these tenses and stuff that you learn in the school. So when I finished that university um degree like i didn't i didn't speak decent french at all and then that time in sweden i just lost everything i learned in french i think the swedish words pushed all the french words out so when i came here to paris i i wasn't at zero but i really wasn't far off it in all like deep deep seriousness there i I was rubbish at french there (laughs) but i mean to you know on a serious note to be able to study a degree uh in a language that you've just picked up did you say in a year yeah, but no, I I could um I didn't do a degree. So when I was in Sweden, I did I studied at university there, but I didn't do a degree there. I did a university course that was uh it essentially gives you the permission to study in Swedish if you wanted. So right after I could have gone and done a journalism degree or a engineering degree or whatever in the Swedish language, like legally I could do it. So it's kinda like being legally fluent, you know? Mm. So that was, you know, I never studied a degree in Sweden. I studied in Australia. I don't know. I guess I'm legally fluent, you could say. <laughs> legally fluent. That's brilliant. So getting back to your um your childhood in Australia or your formative years there, how 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 was your childhood there? Like whereabouts you said sort of pretty much from everywhere. Where did you actually live when you were there with your family? Well, it's kind of weird because like like I'm planning to go back home now for Christmas. And when you say home when you've moved around a lot, it's it's really complicated because mm. my parents live in my parents live in one state. My siblings are in three different states and uh, like all my friends are in another city from where I grew up in Perth. So if I go back, you know, where are you meant to go? Where do you spend your time? Do you spend it with your parents? Do you spend it with your friends? I don't know. Like, and I definitely have no intention or reason to go back to the cities and towns I I spent from the age of like zero to 15, you know? Mm. So I think also having been away for about 10 years now, it's distanced me. A little bit from it and i'm excited to go back and, and 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 catch up with family and everything and sort of get back in touch with my roots have some vegemite see some koalas that kind of stuff you know <laughs> it is interesting because australia is is so far removed from the rest of the world isn't it so it's it's literally on the i mean like where you are now paris you're literally in the hub of europe or the heart of europe you know and it's just such it must be such a different yeah. vibe to australia well that's the thing it, it just like that's the thing that's difficult with it because going back, uh, I hadn't, I haven't been for five years, and that's not intentional. Obviously, we had the lockdowns and everything, but like, if you're going to travel to Australia from Paris, it, it has to be a proper trip. And when you live in Europe, you've got this opportunity suddenly, especially when you come from Australia, like I do. You have this opportunity to go see these other European countries, or maybe take a trip to Africa or America, and then like the time just gets away from you. So it's it's. You know, like you, you can't, like my wife can duck back to Sweden really easily, mm. you know, in two hours, basically. Mm. But for me to go visit family in Australia, it takes like 25 hours just to get there. So it, it, 
unfortunately uh, finds a way of taking a back seat you know mm. so it's um it's a tricky thing it's a very tricky thing yeah and you said that wasn't the swedish woman that you ended up marrying so the one that you're married with now i mean is it just you and her or do you have any children yes we have so my wife is called lena she's swedish and we have a baby uh, a five-month-old baby called otis and that baby is australian and swedish but absolutely not french even though he was born in paris because uh, if, I don't know if you know much about this, Nate, but French admin is extremely complicated. Yes, and uh, be, be, becoming a becoming a Frenchman isn't even possible anymore. They changed the rules, so he's a hundred percent Parisian, but zero percent French, which is a pretty a pretty interesting little life for a five month old. But that's just the way it is. I think one of your episodes was about that, wasn't it? About admin and how complicated it was. Oh man, I've got a story and I, I'm not going to get into it because it'll take a long time to tell. I'm going to do the 20 second. I'm going to do the 20 second version for you and your listeners is <laughs> <laughs> when he was born, you have to go and register the, the child within three days, pick a name and get the birth certificate. And because this boy's father was Australian and mother's mother was Swedish and we didn't have a marriage certificate in French, I had to jump through about 7,000 hoops against the setting sun deadline uh, to let that baby exist in France. And I say exist, that's what the guy said to me. He's like, your baby won't exist if you can't uh, figure this out by the end of the day. Yep. So it was one of the most dramatic, almost traumatic uh, experiences. It's definitely of his life because he was three days old, but even of my life after 35 years on the planet. So um, there's the 20-second version, the much longer version I'm saving for my next book. <laughs> oh, wow. That's, that's awesome. So yeah. your next book, wait, it's going to be about French admin or you can't say yet? Yeah. Whoa, whoa, whoa. No way. It's not going to be a book about French. No one would ever buy that book, Nate. <laughs> Don't scare people away. No, it's going to be – um, the first book I did was about like my first five years in this country and okay. and building a, a career. It's meant to be a, a really light and fun look at, at life in France, uh, adventure and romance, that kind of stuff. This second one will be – um, same kind of thing, but involving story of like tumbling into French fatherhood, uh, you know, the lockdowns in Paris, which was like a deeply interesting time, but it's gonna, I plan for it to begin with this, uh, story of the baby getting born and everything that came, uh, with that 20 second version of the story that I gave you, but spread out over a couple pages, dramatic white knuckle rides, SWAT teams, police. Oh, Nate. Oh, Nate. I can't wait for you to read it. Awesome. And is that coming out anytime soon? Probably not. I don't know. I've got a, I've got a uh, five-month-old baby on my left arm and a podcast microphone in my right arm. Yeah, it's going to be a little while, but it'll, it'll probably be out before you know it. Okay. Is your baby boy going to make an appearance on the podcast today? or uh, Not today because he's asleep, but he has made a few appearances uh, on, on my one. Uh, he doesn't say much, though. He's, he's, he, he's getting there, though. Give him time. Good stuff. Now, you mentioned as well that you know your wife being Swedish. You said it's Lena? Yep. yep. So, obviously, being, you know, her parents can see your little one a lot easier than your side of the family as well. So that's that's quite a challenge, isn't it? Because as your boy grows up, uh, is it Otis, isn't it? It's, it must be quite yep. difficult for your parents to to want to see more of him. Yeah, especially from the beginning because my my parents still haven't met him yet. Oh wow! Um, and well, yeah, because Australia's been closed yeah. like, until it's still the state where my parents are is still closed for another six weeks. So it's difficult. It's very difficult, especially for them. Uh, it's their first grandchild, so they really want to meet him. We'll see what the what the future holds, but I intend to not leave at five years uh, again until I go to Australia. I intend to go back 
a lot more often. And hopefully they can come here too. So we'll see what happens. Oh, lovely. So when, when would you say that your love of traveling started? Good question, Nate. I think, um, I don't know. I think I remember when I would like maybe subconsciously, I remember when we were young and my dad traveled an awful lot. Like he traveled an awful lot and uh, also lived in Europe and so on. And, and sometimes like when we're watching TV as children, like, you know, the pyramids of Egypt would come up mm. and he'd be like, he'd be like being there, boys, or he'd tell us a story from there. And that, that kind of probably sparked something, I'm sure. And then when I was older, when I was like about 18, 19, 20, maybe, I was working somewhere around there, not for three years, but somewhere around there, I was working in a bookshop and I just was finishing up with university. And I, I remember like opening the boxes of books when they came in to put them on the shelf. And whenever the Lonely Planet books came in or any travel books, neither of us are sponsored by Lonely Planet, right? We can say whatever we want. Uh, travel books, when they came in, I'd look at them and look at the cover and I'd be like, oh my goodness, I want to go. I want to go to Kenya. Mm. I want to go to, I want to go to, I don't know, Portugal. And I just sort of dream about it. And um, I don't know. So now uh, flash forward another 10, 15 years and I've, and I've traveled, I've traveled a lot. So I'm really, I'm, I'm very fortunate in that way, I guess. How many countries have you been to? Have you got an idea off the top of your head or? Uh, I counted it once and I don't remember now, but I would say, I would say, I, I don't know, 35 to 50. Okay. Let's say 40. Yeah, yeah. Pretty much we're on a par then. I, th- I think I've been to 37. So yeah, we're we're on a par almost. You've got you've I mean with your with your job uh you need to know how many you've been to because that's probably a question that you ask a lot of people. I don't know because I did most of my traveling uh, when I was younger, but mm. where's your can I ask you where you traveled mostly? Oh, goodness me, that's a good question. Um I wouldn't even know how to answer that. I I'd probably say the Caribbean islands and the and South America. Uh-huh, interesting. I mean, I've rinsed the West, but not really done too much of the East. So believe it or not, I haven't even been to Australia, even though I've actually got quite a few uh-huh. Australian friends, but I've never been to Australia, and I've got to fix that at some point. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, I've been to obviously, you know, the US and, yeah, Brazil, Colombia, Dominican Republic, Puerto Rico, mm-hmm. you know, St. Lucia. I, I get the sense you speak you, you speak Spanish, am I right? <laughs> Mi español no muy bien, pero quiero aprender más, ¿eh? I don't speak Spanish. Uh-huh. <laughs> I, well, it sounds like you got a pretty good accent. You could have fooled me. I don't know. Do you speak Spanish or? No, no, not at all. Not at all. Yeah. So, I mean, we've spoken a bit about traveling, but when specifically would you say that your love affair with Paris began? Like, how did you even end up there? Well, uh, um, I don't know. Because I spoke or because I studied French, I guess I'd always been kind of interested in it, but I I never visited until I was like 21-ish. Mm. And I had a really cool story that, in fact, I'll give you what, well, I'll give you the 45 second version. What do you think? Go for it. <laughs> uh, I don't want to, I don't want to go on too long on any story, but this, this is, um. No, you're a great story. Okay. It's 40. <laughs> oh, thank you. So when I first came here, I was with my uh, little brother, Eddie, who's, who was 12, a young 12 at the time. And uh, through a series of sort of miscommunications and misunderstandings about how it all works in France, we hadn't secured somewhere to stay that night. And we went, and remember, I'll give you the quick version here. We went down the Champs-Élysées, found a tourist booth, asked her for uh, recommendations where we could stay. She said, it's peak summer. You're never going to get anywhere. Sleep on a park bench. Time, little time passed. And I went back to her and I said, look, I don't know what I'm going to tell my parents. If I make my 12-year-old brother sleep on a park bench, what would you do if you were in my situation? 
And it ended up that she uh, invited us to stay at her place. And uh, she had kids that were the same age as him. And she was just the most loveliest woman. Mm. And it was this real kind of eye-opening you know, introduction to this city and this country and sort of the magic of it. So that really stayed, that really stayed with me, uh, in, in later years. And, and we had a really good trip. And the next day, she, cause she was a tour guide or she worked in tourism, she just set us on the best day trip of things to do. She just told us everything to do and it was wonderful. So I had that, that a really strong first impression of Paris. And then to answer your second question, when I, uh, was sort of winding up my time in Sweden, a job opportunity became, available for working as a journalist in Paris in an English language uh, online newspaper. Mm. And I, I I took the job and I told him I spoke really good French from university, which was a lie. <laughs> uh, and when I got here, I think they, f- they figured out really quickly that my French was rubbish. But then I went to a language school here and, and improved it and so oh, on. Yes. And then, uh, yeah, that's how we got to, that's how we got here, I guess, via quitting that job and starting a podcast. And now you kind of got my whole life story. No, that's really cool. I love stories as well. When you turn up to a place, don't have accommodation, and then you end up meeting some random person and staying in their house because it's, yeah. it's happened to me as well when yeah. I was backpacking. And I've yeah, so many right. stories, and it's just it's amazing. And it actually shows that human nature can be really, really good as well. Yeah, you know what else it shows that it shows that people like you and me have loaded up on uh, the the good karma of other people, especially like especially me. I know that I traveled a lot, a lot of people you know, took me in or gave me a lift or let me crash on their couch. And I absolutely intend to pay that karma back mm. when I uh, have a house and when all my sort of nieces and nephews and, and you know, strangers on the street need a place to stay. I'm very aware that I owe the, the travel gods a lot of karma. So I, I intend to repay it. Mm. Now, that's really, really nice to hear as well. So getting back to your sort of family life, um, I'm burning to ask this. So you're an Australian, you married Lena, uh, this Swedish lady. So there's so much culture going on in your family because, you know, Australian, married to a Swede, living in France. So who mm. would you say adapted more to the French way of life, you or her? Um, I'd say probably me because I, when I came here, I worked in, a, in an office and I had to learn French quicker. And, uh, and at first, and we still kind of are, we've got a lot of foreigner friends. Like it's really easy to blend in with other Swedes or Australians or Americans or whatever. Mm. So, you know, like it's a, it's a good point when, when you move to like a lot of the people we know in Paris who are foreigners are married to a French guy or a French girl. Mm. And it really helps them adapt mm. on a huge level that we can't even almost understand. You know, like if we have a problem, if I have a problem with, anything like like taxes or whatever i can't just turn to my french wife and say what's going on here and she explains in two seconds lena and i are both in the deep end so um because i was forced to learn everything quicker for my job i think i i adapted to it stronger and out of the two of us i guess i'm probably the one that would answer the tax questions or or so on Mm. now but i say taxes in the early days it's kind of funny in the early days when we both uh moved here and fell in love and and started our lives together here it wasn't tax questions that we needed help from each other on or from someone. It was just things like if you go into a supermarket and there's two brands of cream, let's say, French people know that that's the good one, that's the bad one, that's the one with the bad reputation, or which street to walk down, you know? Mm. Whereas Lena and I, we had no idea on any of that stuff. Like if you go to the dessert aisle in a French supermarket, there's uh, yogurt or yogurt for your American listeners. Mm. Um, and there's like 
like 10,000 different kinds of it. So I remember we walked in and we just laughed. We're like, we don't even know where to begin. Where do you even begin? <laughs> Whereas if I had a French wife or she was with a French guy, those kind of things aren't even a discussion. So it was kind of cool to to start off our life here together like that. And I think we we got a lot out of it that way. Yeah, it's quite romantic as well to be able to learn together. But like in general terms, would you say, you know, generalizing the question if I can, would you say Sweden or Australia is as a country more diametrically opposed to the Parisian way of life? That's a tough one. I think I think a, there's a big difference with Australia and Paris in that Australians are so laid back, including often with things like administration and, and uh, like this kind of f- friendly laid backness that Australians have, which can be a, a weakness as well for sure. Mm. But it that doesn't really gel very well with um, French, uh, you know, like if you need to get a, a passport or something like that fixed. Super different. Uh, and Sweden is so different to France because in Sweden, everything works. Like everything's very functional and makes sense, uh, really easy. Uh, like, like for example, everybody in Sweden has a, like a social security kind of number and they all know it off the top of their heads. It's done in a very clever way using your birth date and so on. And you can walk into, when I first moved to Sweden, I almost fainted when I saw this. You walk into a dentist or a doctor or whatever. Sometimes there's a machine there. You just pin your number in, this, this personal number it's called, Peshunummer it's called. And uh, you don't even need to talk to the receptionist or, or whoever's there. They'll just call out your name when your time's available. So you just you go in, yeah, you press the thing, you sit down, and then five minutes later they go, Oliver G, and you stand up and you go. And when I first saw that happening, I could not believe it. Uh, and if you compare that to like that efficiency is is crazy. And if you compare that to France, where nothing is simple, nothing is very well organized. Um, getting a social security number here takes, you know, you have to send in photocopies of your your first ever pet dog's dental records. Obviously, I'm exaggerating, but like you know, like those kind of things. And I just and I'm, I'm doing it here, and I'm just like, oh my gosh, this is crazy. So there's huge opposites between between all of them. And, uh, and, and few similarities, to be honest. But it's kind of that what make, that's what makes life interesting. An Australian and a Swede tackling France together. Uh, I don't know. I guess that's probably a part of the reason that what we do is has a fairly large following is because it's an intriguing story that's, um, that's just a bit different. Yeah. No, but what a clash of cultures. And, uh, like you said, that's why there is a following because Paris, you know, and just France in general, it's got something. Yeah, about it, hasn't it? It's got some kind of vavavoom that just is different to so many other places. So, for example, I know that many people listening to this right now will be screaming out for me to ask you, which is, I have to ask you, you know, they'll be thinking, I want to visit Paris, but I'm on a budget because, you know, there's a lot of people that, you know, when it comes to money, they're limited, but they still have that burning desire to travel. And so they should. And I've listened to many of your episodes all about, you know, the French cuisine and food, and I've loved it. And what advice would you have, Oliver, for for like a, you know, a typical French cuisine that people can enjoy that's of a high standard, but that's not going to break the bank? Yeah. Well, like on a more general point first is actually in all honesty, a a very easy city to live or travel to on a budget. Really? Uh, Two of these listeners, yeah, it really. I mean, because I, when I quit my job as a journalist and started as a podcaster, I was broke, 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 like broke, 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 and uh, and I lived here. So if I can do it, anyone can do it. Anyone can do it for sure. Um, and there's just little tricks. Like, firstly, the obvious stuff that anyone who's ever traveled knows that you don't go 
eat your dinner in the Ritz or whatever. Um, like it's really common in Paris for students and, and young younger people and a lot of hipsters to go to a supermarket and grab um, cheese and a baguette and and you know like uh, ham or whatever and beer from the supermarket and go and sit by the Seine River or the Canal Saint Martin and have a picnic for dinner mm-hmm. and that would be you eating like, it's like eating in a supermarket price you know so um, that's. It might sound weird for people listening in countries where they don't do that kind of stuff, but it's super common here. And uh, and if you're like five people, like if you go to the Canal Saint Martin, Saint Martin, uh, in the summer, you'll see like hundreds and hundreds, maybe thousands of people that do that. They buy a bottle of wine for you know as cheap as like two or three euros, and they share it between all of them. And then uh, you know that's cheaper than that's the cheapest meal you're going to get in Europe, right? Absolutely. Uh, but if you if you do want to sit in a restaurant or a bistro or a cafe or whatever, a really good option, especially if you're in a group of people, is to get – here's my tip for you. You get a planche mixte, so P-L-A-N-C-H-E, mm-hmm. planche, which just means like a board, and mixed, mm-hmm. M-I-X-T-E, mixed, just mean a mixed board of food, and it's cheese and charcuterie, which is, you know – like cold hams and they put sort of pickles and stuff on it and you can or pickles lettuce whatever extras and they serve a bunch of bread with it and if you're two or four people or whatever you can get they're usually as cheap as like 12 15 euros uh, and they're really good like french cheese excellent cheese mm. um, bottle of wine to go with that it's not going to be wildly different from the price of the supermarket food that you got if you're dividing it with friends so it's just a matter of being smart. Don't don't go to the expensive districts. Stay where the young people are, like along that canal is especially a good idea. Um, and uh, and don't be afraid to come here because of the prices. There definitely is the luxury side. Champs-Élysées in the first hour on this month, the district where all the sort of fancy shops and department stores are. Just avoid those places <laughs> and you'll be fine. That's good to hear. That's excellent, excellent advice. So d- down by the canal, that's where it's at. That's That's good to know. That's where it's at. Now, Paris is also known for its fashion, isn't it? And I, a few episodes ago, I interviewed um, a makeup artist. You know, she's worked with various celebrities and so on. And she, I mean, her CV is amazing. And mm. she even worked at uh, the Paris Fashion Week once. And I mean, is there a lot of pressure for just everyday people to dress, you know, in a, and act in a certain way on a day-to-day basis when you're in Paris or certain parts of Paris? I think uh, that's another good question. I think it's, I don't think... They feel the pressure because I think they're really used to it. But it's more, I think the pressure is on the tourists to to kick it with the French people or the Parisians. It's very different, the Parisians and the French people. Like around France, people don't really care what they wear. And, uh, you know, I travel a lot around France. You ask me about my honeymoon if we, if we can remember. Um, but like in Paris, the French people, they're super like laid back, well-dressed, you know, and it's, I see it every single day. Today I, I saw it, you see, especially uh, young women that go crazy dressing up, trying to be like a, a French model and they put the beret on and they put like clothes that are way too tight and sort of uncomfortable looking shoes like high heels and you can spot them from a kilometer away. You're like, what are you doing? You don't fit in at all and they're trying to fit in whereas this uh, the French look for men and women is this sort of effortlessly mm. chic uh, there's a big thing. I, I interviewed a, a, a model the other day and she was talking about the trick is to make your hair look like you just got out of bed. Like you don't just get out of bed, but you make it look like that. 
Whereas a lot of these tourists uh, uh, who come here, they they put all this time and money and effort into their hair or their makeup, right. and it just makes you stand out. So the pressure is on them. The Parisians are very cool about it, and they pull it off really well. And I think that's probably why they're so famous for it. That's interesting. So it's the people that are essentially trying to – they're trying it too hard, and, and then they end up standing out exactly. for the wrong reasons. It's me and you, Nate. We're the problem. It's not It's not the <laughs> – well, I'm going to remember next time I go to Paris, I'm just going to be effortless and just have bed hair and just, you know, hope yeah. people talk to you me got in it. French and then I'll know that I'm doing a good job. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and order a planche mixed and you'll be fine. Yeah. So what about people wanting to, um, obviously French is, you know, it's a beautiful romantic language and my father actually speaks it. It's one of his uh, several mother tongues, but he unfortunately didn't pass it on to, uh, to his kids. And I mean, what about people that obviously, you know, they're listening to, to to your podcasts and reading all your blogs and so on, and they just love what you have to say about France and Paris, but they're scared of relocating there because of the language. Have you got any advice for people like that? And that could actually be myself as yeah. well, because it, it is a scary language for some weird reason. Yeah. Well, yeah, it's true, because there's so many rules and it's so irregular, and, and there are all these stories about French people being so apparently rude if you if you don't make an effort with the language, if you get it wrong. But but it's uh, there's nothing to be scared about. I mean, now young people in France, in Paris, there's a big difference. Young people in Paris all seem to speak English really well thanks to the internet, thanks to, like I remember my old neighbor who at the time, he was he's just a young French guy and he was improving his English so quickly because he he couldn't couldn't bear the thought of waiting for Game of Thrones to be dubbed into French on TV and he'd stream it illegally and he could only watch it in English. So his English was improving so rapidly because he was doing that for TV shows like Game of Thrones. Uh, and, you know, he's obviously not alone. A lot of young French people are, are devouring this foreign, uh, especially American culture. So, and they're teaching it in schools way more than they ever used to. So, firstly, so many people speak um, English. Secondly, uh, it's... Like if if you're speaking English, uh, if that's your native language, French isn't a far cry from English. Like you already speak a thousand words without even realizing it. You know, words like restaurant or cinema or croissant, croissant. What do you say in England? Croissant. Uh, <laughs> you know, like we already know all these words already. So it's just a matter of stringing them together. Whereas if you're trying to learn, like Russian or I don't know Korean or or Arabic. Mm. Yeah, you're screwed from the beginning. Like you got to, like I remember when I was learning Swedish. I remember in the very first class they put you all together and they try and um, they try and ascertain what you know your language skills in general. And and the first class was they were teaching us the Swedish alphabet. And and for me, I learned the Swedish alphabet in eight seconds because it's the English alphabet plus three letters. So I had to just learn three letters, right? And I was sitting next to this guy from uh, uh, an Arabic speaking country. And I, and him to learn that alphabet was really obviously mm. it, not just that he also had to learn or think to write left to right rather than right to left. <laughs> so just the alphabet, I had this mega head start on him, uh, just because Swedish and English are so similar. It's the same with English and French. Mm. Uh, we've got a big head start. Anyone listening to us now clearly speaks English, uh, and you've got a huge head start. So I would say whether you want to live here or be a tourist here. Don't be afraid. It's easier than you think. Yeah, no, it's true. It's, it's actually funny that we spoke a little bit about of, uh, about Arabic because that's another one of my father's uh, mother tongues. And yeah, it's such a different, difficult mm. language. And random question, totally off script, but coming to think about it, there's quite big Arab communities in France that aren't there as well. 
Have you come across yeah, that? Yeah, for sure. I um and I, I I was thinking about it the other day and I think it'd be cool to learn some Arabic words. So I was watching a YouTube video cuz cuz especially where I um used to live in the 18th district of of Montmartre, uh there are a lot of Arabic people who ran shops nearby and I thought I always like trying to speak people's languages so I put on this YouTube video tried to learn hello how are you and those kind of things mm. it was such a ton ah see look you, you're a you're a <laughs> that's all I know. You're a whiz. <laughs> how are you that's all I know how to say in Arabic <laughs> I couldn't like I don't even want to embarrass myself trying to remember it now but I was like I'm just gonna learn five phrases and I found it really really difficult Compared to, uh, you know, like if you wanted to learn Portuguese or something like that, mm. they use the same alphabet. So, um, so yeah, I don't know. That sort of goes back to the previous thing we we're talking about. But yeah, there are a lot of Arabic people, a lot of, uh, especially in the suburbs, you see them a lot. You know, it's, well, same with any city, really. There are areas where they're really immigrant rich areas. And then there are areas like where I happen to be living right now that's full of old white people. Uh, I'm in the seventh arrondissement and, uh, you know, it wasn't a conscious choice by me. It's just where I found an apartment. But, you know, this is a very, very multi-culty city and uh, it's richer for it, if you ask me. Absolutely. I think you, I came across one of your videos and I'm sure it was mentioned on one of your podcasts as well. And I believe it was entitled How to Fake French. And I do remember yeah. pretty much dying of laughter. So could you give the listeners a quick rundown on your How to Fake French? Right. So... Uh, the idea with that video was I just wanted to do something really easy, not much editing, something that I hoped would go viral so I could grow the podcast. This was in the really early days. And thank goodness it went it went crazy viral. Like I put on Facebook, it got something like four or five million hits. So that really sort of established. I know. Uh, on YouTube, it never went super crazy. I think it's got like 100 or 200,000. But on Facebook, it just went wild. Five million? And, um, goodness me. That's yeah, crazy. And people started people started downloading it and like adding subtitles and uh you know sharing it on Italian pages or whatever. So really it probably has I don't even know how many hits it would have because it it just it just got away from me really. But the concept is really simple is I I think you can fake French um by a few little tricks and the tricks maybe I don't even remember them all now but but um and then I put all the tricks together. So the trick was like number one tip was you uh, you imitate uh, a cow, like a cow. When you make that noise, it's like, like you know, you purse your lips a little bit and you breathe air through it like that. French people do it all the time. <laughs> I think I even did it before in this interview. I realized I was doing it myself. And then uh, another tip is you imitate a, like a monk. And I said, I don't really know what monks sound like, but I assume that they sort of do this kind of noise a lot like, <laughs> which French people do all the time. I could just and then, uh, <laughs> and then I added two more tips. One of them was uh, it was to use a French swear word that's hardly like it's it's the word it's a vulgar word for prostitute, and in French it's putain, putain, and oh. they say it all the time. Everyone says it. Children say it. Everybody says it. Goodness me! Uh, yes, you hear it all the time. Putain. And then the last one. And this was a bit different is, is you just need to learn like two or three metro stations very well. So don't worry learning all the tenses and the, and the verb conjugations. Just learn how to pronounce two or three metro stations. And the one I mentioned in the video was, um, Barbès Rochechois, Barbès Rochechois. That's quite hard. An easier one would be Sentier, Sentier. And then the idea is you put them all together and you sound French. So it's like, uh, Barbès Rochechois. Uh, Putain, euh, sentier. 
uh, like that. That was it. It was a one minute video and it took off. And uh, <laughs> I'm glad you liked it as well. <laughs> oh, that is just so funny. So, yeah, all the listeners, if you want to actually see that video, just yeah, Google it and have a good old laugh. It is, it is, I need to watch it again. Yeah. This, uh, this episode actually, it was, it was genuinely very funny. But, uh, oh, thanks so much. So, you've, with getting to obviously the earful tower, you've, how did you come up with that name, by the way? I mean, I, I feel like I know how you I, came up with that name, but I still want to ask you. <laughs> <laughs> I just, um, I don't know. Actually, I was thinking of all the French, because I mean, for any of your, your listeners who haven't figured it out, it's like the Eiffel Tower obviously is mm-hmm. in Paris and the Eiffel Tower is a podcast for your ears. So that's how I made it. But it was, um, I just wanted to put together words that had something to do with podcasting or listening with something to do with France. So I was thinking of everything like cafe creme, you know, red wine, croissant, cheese, planche mixed. I was thinking of all these words and what went together. And then I just came up with uh, the earful tower. And uh, I'm glad I did because it's a good uh, sort of unusual name that that people luckily remember. Although there are um, there are listeners who have listened to it for years who write me an email and they go, I only just figured out why you called it the Eiffel Tower. And I'm always like, what did you think? Like, what were you thinking? It, it, it doesn't make sense. Yeah, yeah. But um, yeah, that's how I came up with it, and I uh, I stuck with it. Now it's a company. Now it's like a legit official company, the Eiffel Tower in in France. With uh, it's crazy. I don't know. It's so funny to think that it just. It, I still think it's really funny that this podcast idea I had and this name that I had that people um use that word like people tell their friends listen to the earful tower and they're just words i put together you know i love it it's uh i pinch myself all the time that it became a thing yeah so uh oh, it's, 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 a, it's very catchy and it's like it's not you know it's not easy to forget so all the people that are listening and they hear the earful tower I, f- I feel like you only need to say it two or three times and that's it it's just in your head you know i oh, know and now we've said it like 11 times i need to give you some kind of a commission date. this is amazing <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. So it will be a sliding scale that we can sort out uh, later off, off podcast. <laughs> but you've you've built a community, haven't you? And do you meet many of the listeners of your podcast in person? Yeah, definitely. It's um, it's grown, it's grown a lot now. So there are there are there are a lot of listeners, and um, and like when now I live in a very touristy area, and it's it's pretty common now. That people stop me on the street and uh, say hello oh, because wow. you know, yeah, it's 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 especially in touristy areas, and it happens. One funny thing that happens is because I go to a lot of the touristy areas myself to research stuff, uh, and and then that's where I'm most likely to bump into listeners or you know viewers or readers or whatever. So it's happened pretty often that I'll be somewhere really special or famous, admiring something really cool. Like, 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 uh, one time I was at the Louvre looking at this Leonardo da Vinci, um, sketch and I was like looking up really close and, uh, this American woman came up and she's like, Oh my God, are you, are you Oliver G? And I was like, yeah. And she's like, Oh, I love your work. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I'm like, you know, we're, we're looking at, at, uh, like a da Vinci sketch. Let's focus on that. But thanks very much. You know, like, but, but when you go to these kind of places, it's it's way more likely that that someone's going to stop yeah um stop me or me and my wife in the street but meeting them um it's funny like uh when i when i started the podcast uh i would meet anyone like if someone messaged me and said i listen to your show do you want to meet up for a coffee i'd be like are you kidding yeah i'll buy you the coffee i'm so grateful that you listen to the show that's lovely like i was i was thrilled at the beginning and now like it's it's come to a a point where if someone messages me and says you know 
I think they think they're being, re- they're obviously trying to be really lovely and they say, Hey, I'm coming to Paris. I'd love to buy you dinner. Thanks for your podcast. I listen to it every week. And I'm like, uh, you know, I have to very politely say no because, you know, especially when you have a, a baby and you got a, you got work and a life and everything, you can't have dinner with every listener. But it's, um, it's just another one of those things that's kind of crazy to have started off me wanting to buy coffee for anyone who'd take the time to meet me to, to, you know, it feels almost rude, but to have to say no to people that want to, uh, come and buy dinner. It's a big switch, but it's, uh, it's a, it's a crazy one. And, um, I don't know. I'm still adjusting to it. It's kind of a crazy, it's a crazy, it's a crazy life to have a podcast that people listen to, but I love it. It is. It's just amazing as well. I, I kept on thinking about that, that picture of you there looking at a Da Vinci, um, mm-hmm. painting, you know, one of the most famous, painters ever you know and then a woman comes along and, and yeah. it's like you know hey oh it's oliver you know hey, yeah i love your work it's it's yeah. quite actually that, amazing isn't it that there you are in the presence of greatness by looking at this painting but she actually recognizes your work and not his I know. that's actually amazing i know and it's it's and you think you're amazed like i was really like i find it crazy i find it crazy and that and like i said that kind of thing has happened the exact same thing happened fairly recently in the Victor Hugo Museum, the exact same thing. Like I was looking at a painting and someone, it was another American that came up and said a similar thing. And I like it, it blows you away because as you know, with a podcast, like we're doing it right now, we're both sitting talking to a microphone. It's not like we're talking in front of an audience with 10,000 people watching. Mm. Um, uh, it's very different. Like you're just sitting in a room. You never really have more than two or three people in the room while you're recording. So to know that a stranger listens to you and it's quite an intimate relationship you have not intimate in a sexual way nate of course but like you're talking to their you're talking to their ears Absolutely. every week you're giving them they feel they know you so well oh wow there's another euro i'll send it <laughs> <out later. laughs> i'm sure you've used that one tons of times but it is true though because with podcasting i mean i've listened to, I, I can't even who knows how many of your episodes i've listened to um i haven't got through all of them yet obviously but um i've been listening for a few months and uh you do mm. you definitely definitely do build up a relationship with that person because you you get to know them really really well um mm. it's a very mm. very valid point you know because people are hearing your voice um and they become attuned to the way you express yourself and the intonation of yeah. your voice and your emotion and how you interact with yeah. other people and it, it is actually a really special relationship and and like you said it's nice yeah, when well, you meet those people to to treat them you know with respect back as well well there's a funny thing that um there's a funny thing on that because I think the way that I do the podcast is it's very like, as you're doing with me now, I interview people and I hear their story and it's all about them. But then there are episodes where, you know, I might join, my wife might join me or or I'll add things like just kind of like earlier in the episode, you mentioned your father's mother tongue. So listeners to your program, they've got that information about you as the host, even though it's not, a, this isn't about you at the moment, you know, but there's a nugget. That's that, true. Yeah. You know builds a story for them and what's what i find really weird like like i must have met i don't know i must have met like 500 people who've listened to the show uh with various events and stuff uh, through through the years now and what i find really interesting is everyone has a different way of meeting me as a podcast that they listen to uh everyone reacts differently right so there's some people who just be really normal like two friends and, and just chatting or some people who'll be very polite but a bit sort of distance and then some people and i always find this pretty interesting some people who have clearly like this kind of need to balance the scales they're like well i've listened for 40 hours to you oliver 
they don't say that, obviously, but then they're like, now you can hear a little bit about me. So some people will come up and they'll be like, oh, hey, Oliver, I love your show. Ever since uh, my divorce, well, my second divorce was horrible or whatever. And I'm like, and I'm often I'm standing there, I'm like, I don't even know who you are, but you, but you, you, you know, you feel that you know the host so well. So it's, um, but I'm really used to, I'm really used to it now. And, and when people say that kind of stuff and then they maybe go, they go, um, oh, look at me telling you my whole life story. This is weird. I'm like, nah, I'm really super used to it. Like that's, it's, it's just a very strange uh, relationship, but that's just how it is. It's bizarre, but it's actually complimentary when you think about it because evidently they they like who you are to the point where they feel that they can open up and it, yeah it is weird but it's, course, it's, it's a yeah. compliment isn't it of course yeah and i'd never you know i'd never go what the hell are you telling me about your deceased husband for you know like i, I get it i i get it i've i'm fortunate to have been in the position a couple of times now but um <laughs> but it is a very strange relationship it's a very fascinating uh one-way relationship so it's always going to be interesting when that one way suddenly becomes two ways, even if only for 30 seconds on the street. Yeah, yeah. No, it's really yeah. fascinating stuff. Now, we mustn't forget as well that you're an author too. So how, how many books have you written now, uh, Oliver? So I did that first one, Paris on Air, was the story of my first five years in Paris. And that was um, that that was uh, like, a, like a memoir kind of book. And I, I did that one first. And then uh, during the big, the great Paris lockdown, that wasn't great at all, but it was big. Uh, my wife, who's a, a she's a shoe designer and a handbag designer, and she's a really good illustrator as well. So when we were sitting in our little tiny apartment, bored out of our minds, we uh, decided to write a children's book. And uh, one of the podcast stories that I did a couple of years ago, based on this old lady who told me that she released a crocodile into that very canal we were talking about I earlier. Remember that episode? Like yeah. She, well, that was a crazy episode, but we, we me, <laughs> yeah, I know. So me and my wife were talking about this idea. Let's, let's just make a children's book and see what happens. And, uh, fortunately for us, like it went, it, it just went kind of gangbusters. It just, I don't know. I think, I think cause lots of people were in lockdown, had nothing to do. People were very supportive and it, and it just, uh, it just flew really, uh, which is weird for a crocodile when you think about it. But it went crazy, and uh, and we just released our second children's book like two weeks ago, which is about a liger and is absolutely fictional, whereas the other one was based on a true story. And and suddenly, we become children book author and and illustrators, and it's been a really cool ride because it opens uh, because it opens all sorts of unusual doors. You know, like uh, like the book is being sold in museums and department stores and bookshops around Paris. Uh, but also because it's just another, it's just another way in to, you know, like we're going to do a talk at a, at a school next week, which, you know, as a, as a handbag designer and as a podcaster, they never would have invited us in a school to talk to the kids and their parents, but suddenly that's what we're doing. So it's just been a, a real door opener and another eye opener too. And, uh, I don't know. We're pretty chuffed with it. It's been a pretty, <laughs> a pretty unexpected turn in our, in our paths. And, yeah. and we're happy it happened. Yeah. And so you should be. So, so there's, there's two, children's book so roger the the liger am i saying that right liger 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 like a tiger, tiger. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's yeah. Right. roger the liger in paris and kylie yeah. the croc and and of course the book that you mentioned earlier um and then obviously yeah. you've got one coming up so that would be four that's yeah that's that's absolutely that's amazing right. stuff and it's crazy and I, i'm gonna i'll say one thing about those books in case anyone's curious about it if uh if anyone were to look for them look for them on my site rather than uh one thing i learned about authors the like um because i interviewed a bunch of authors in paris is uh it's a tough game and like websites like amazon and stuff or i don't know how authors are surviving 
with uh, big websites like Amazon and stuff. So what I've learned to do personally as well is if an author has a website is to always seek it out as a first port of call and getting a book. Right, and then sell directly to your clients off your website type of thing. Basically, that's what we do. And we've got people helping with distribution like in all across America and Canada and in Australia. You know, we really we self-published them. We self-published them. We really took on the uh, traditional way of doing books, which is which is it goes back to like having a podcast with lots of listeners. And this is a whole different topic for a whole nother podcast, but like um it's it seems crazy to go the old school way of making a book, of getting an agent and a publisher and giving them all the profits essentially and hoping that one day you'll you'll make some profits out of it. If you've got a big audience, you can self-publish a book and sell it directly to them, which I think is the the future of of uh especially podcasters and yeah. YouTubers and stuff. I think it's the future of the way to do it. Yeah. If you ever do a book, Nate, that's how I'd advise you to go about it. Goodness me. I've never thought about doing a book, but now that you see, I mean, you've given me inspiration for, for sure. <laughs> so who knows? One day. Oh, that's good to hear. <laughs> How lovely. Yeah. I hope you do. I hope you do. No, thank you. Well, if I ever do, I'll, if you don't mind, I'll, I'll have to drop you an email and get a bit of advice on. Please. Uh, no, call me, call me anytime. Thank you. But, uh, you mentioned the pandemic a few minutes ago as well. So just, just have to ask you about that. Um, you said it was quite interesting what happened in, in Paris, but did it, did it make you and your wife a bit more, I mean, you, you clearly love Paris already, but were you even happier to just think, well, we can't go anywhere anywhere uh, anyway. Let's just enjoy <laughs> Paris to the absolute no, fun. No, it definitely didn't because it was one of those very strict lockdowns and we were only allowed out one kilometer radius of our apartment. And, uh, and Paris, I don't know if you remember, Paris was one of the first cities really in the whole world that got super struck by all that. Like it was like it was China and then it was Italy and then it was Paris. And um, our apartment was so small, like it's, it's one bedroom and one small living room. And we had to spend, it was like, what was it, 55 days or something in there? And uh, that was tough. Like when we were, like I know it was different for every country and some people had it way tougher, some people had it way lighter than that. But that first one, we were only allowed out of the house for, I think it was an hour every day. And you had mm. to sign a permission slip in case the police stopped you. So we, no one enjoyed it. I don't think it was, um, it didn't, it, that part of it didn't, I didn't care about Paris really at that point. I was just, we're just trying to get through it. But oh, when it ended and started opening up and all the tourists were gone because they legally couldn't be here, that was a super, super interesting time for Paris because I, I've got so many cool pictures and cool stories about walking around the most tourist heavy areas in, in the world, like the Sacre Coeur or under the Eiffel Tower. And it was so empty. Like I remember seeing rabbits grazing on the grass by the Eiffel Tower in an area that usually, yeah, an area that usually has 10,000 tourists, uh, popping champagne and eating cheese, uh, and buying little Eiffel Tower key rings. There were rabbits running around and I was like, like nature, like the grass around it grew like higher than your knees. It was, it was just a wild time. And, uh, I sort of made the most out of it and explored it a lot. We moved to a new neighborhood. That part was really interesting and, and intriguing and fun. But the, the lockdown parts were, I think, a memory everybody wants to move on from. Mm. But I mean, if that happened in Paris, you can only imagine what would happen in Australia with all that wildlife. You know, it could take over the, uh. Oh man. Yeah. The kangaroos. Yeah. The kangaroos would take over the Sydney Harbour Bridge. The koalas would be on the opera house. I can't even imagine. Yeah. No, that is absolutely amazing. But it's funny. I was just thinking, like, if I was, you know, out and about during the lockdown and you said, what, an hour? You had an hour and one kilometer? Yep. Goodness that's right. Me. And did you ever get caught by the cops or? 
Yep. We got uh, we got caught. We didn't get caught. We got stopped. Oh, Matt, couldn't you just um, bribe him with like a croissant or something? Or is that just... Uh... <laughs> I don't know. I didn't try. Maybe. But it was... Um, We got stopped enough in the early days to make us scared because there were big fines if you got caught beyond your kilometer. And um, plus, it wasn't just that that we were scared of because it was so new at the time. I don't know what it was like in all the other countries. But for us, we were like, we didn't want to go further and mingle with people or even be on the street with people. It was so confusing. This is like this is like two years ago now or whatever it was. So, um, like, we avoided the police. when Even if we were within our – we were always within our kilometer. But even if we were within our time, within our kilometer, and we saw police on the other side of the road, we'd – turn away and go somewhere else it just wasn't it wasn't pleasant like it was visually pleasant and it was quiet and there was less fog and smog and all that stuff but it wasn't like (laughs) i wouldn't say that was the time to be in paris guys you missed out so i don't know dark days for everybody but including paris you mentioned uh portugal earlier on in the podcast when i you know i was asking you about your traveling and and you, you you mentioned portugal specifically as a place that you wanted to go and could I ask you, do you feel that the, it's quite a sort of a generalized question, but do you feel that the lifestyle that's offered in Paris is sort of very, very different from neighboring big cities in places like Portugal or Spain? I don't know if you could maybe answer that. I know it's quite a general Definitely. question, but I'm just intrigued to know what you No, but I mean, there's, yeah, there's, there's big different, like, I think I mentioned speaking Portuguese rather than going there because I've been there a couple of times to Portugal and, um, Ah, falar por like, <laughs> Look at you. <laughs> That's all um, I know. I'm just showing off. But I don't... You got you 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 got two words in every single language. It's amazing. <laughs> um, it's uh, there's this huge like I think it's I think what's more interesting is how different every big city is that is so close together. Especially for me coming from Australia, where you can get in a car in Perth and drive. 25 hours and get out of that car and everyone's speaking the same language looks the same eats the same watches the same tv whereas if you get on a in a car or a train and go from paris in any direction for four hours it's so different whether it's a big city or a small city or a town Mm. um like i don't know like i think there's a hugely different mindset and um sort of set of cultural rules and norms that i've seen traveling a lot especially around western europe especially around eastern europe but um i think that's what makes it all so interesting that's why i want to be in europe that's why i love it um but as for a and as you know a perfect answer to a general question i don't have one nate but i i'm excited to explore as much as i can in these kind of countries before i'm too old to do it <laughs> only in your mid thirties. There's still there's still time, but uh, yeah, I got time. I got time. Yeah, no, that's it. So, do you feel? I feel like with everything you're doing, you do you feel that your future is obviously in Paris or at least in Europe? With Paris always a part of your life? I don't know. I wonder about how hard it would be to switch it up in any way. Like, not that I intend to, but just you know, it's always interesting to think, like writing children's books and and and. Uh, non-fiction for adults is is you can easily be anywhere you could be mm. you could be sitting a, a small island in the caribbean and do that stuff mm. but uh, it, and it sounds quite tempting doesn't it, <laughs> it does. uh, but <laughs> but with a podcast i think it's harder to 
like for you it's different that you're doing the whole world for me at the moment i'm doing paris and i think it would be a little bit disingenuous to do that from zoom from the caribbean yes every week forever like a big part of what i do is is visiting things and people know like you know last week i was down in the catacombs today i was at uh at the this beautiful restored uh sort of palace like i'm there and i'm showing it i'm sharing it and i think that's what people react to and, and I'm a, i've become an expert on paris so i don't know what the future holds but i'd be super interested in expanding and and bringing in other cities or countries and and seeing if people had an appetite for that yeah but uh you know now that the world is opening up again i can start exploring those ideas but for the moment it's paris yeah and uh and I'm enjoying it a lot. No, very interesting answer. It's funny because I just had a vision of you sitting there on the beach with your laptop and, you know, writing children's books and doing all your podcasting <laughs> via Zoom and whatever. But maybe in that scenario, you wouldn't have the random American lady saying, oh, you, you Oliver G, you know, from because obviously yeah. you're so part of it now. You're, you're in Paris. And like you said, you're seen by all these people, probably the locals and tourists. And that's actually very cool for you and for your brand, isn't it? Because like you said, it becomes... um it just shows that you're a very genuine guy and you you truly love what you do and you love the place that you talk about and and that's what people want to see. Yeah, I think you hit it like it's genuine, it's real and that's that's uh that's important. Maybe I can get away with doing children's books and podcasting from the Caribbean for a year or something. Yeah. And then go but, back. Um but I don't know, I was thinking about like Rick Steves. Um no one knows where he is or what he does, but he has an empire, so it is possible. That's Who knows? True. Watch this, watch this space, watch this space. <laughs> we will do. So, I mean, where, where next for your podcast and for you then following on from that? I mean, do you feel that it's just, you know, no, no big changes in the foreseeable future? Obviously, you've got your new boy, Otis. Mm. That, that's right, isn't it, Otis? Yeah, that's right. That's right. That's it. I suppose what you just feel, let's just enjoy family life now in Paris, bring up your little boy in, in the Parisian way of life. And, and that's probably a great, at yeah. least a great few years, isn't it? I think so. Although, like, if, if things keep growing and I can justify like hiring people and expanding, which I'm kind of in the process of doing, I would love to experiment. Like I experimented with a season of the podcast from Sweden. I called it the Earful Sweden. I think I did 10 episodes and it was pretty well received. And, um, you know, like I did that because I was in Sweden a lot at the time and I, I have this connection to Sweden as we talked about, but I'd be really interested in going to countries like, like or cities like Rome and London, mm. for example, um, and and just trying to do a season there, spend like a month or two there, in, interview, like have experts teach me. I could be the idiot uh, exploring these places and see what see what comes from it. But it's um, uh, you know, that's for if it grows. At the moment, as you know very well, Nate, making a podcast when you're on a small team or a team of one in in uh, a lot of people's cases is hard. You got a lot of things to do behind the scenes that take up all the time. So mm. it would have to have to be growth in the company, but um, I'm up for it. I'm always up for adventure and intrigued to see where it would take me. Yeah. Good answer. Absolutely awesome and exciting answer as well. And so for people as well that have obviously loved listening to you, the earfultower.com, that's the best place that they can find you? I think I think that's the best place to get a good overview of what I do. Your people that are listening, they're podcast people. So I'd say just subscribe to the Earful Tower and, and give it a listen. But often what I've lately started telling people is it's like find the, the channel that you like the most, if it's YouTube or Instagram or Facebook or whatever, and, just, and just follow whatever you use. Follow me there, the Earful Tower, and then gradually see if I can't convince you to become uh, the next person that's going to stop me on the street somewhere in paris 
<laughs> or when looking at a Da Vinci painting or something. <laughs> who knows? Who knows? But that's what I'd say. Follow me on something. Maybe Instagram and then just jump in the world. Dip a toe in the world and see where it takes you. That's, yeah. my, that's how I recommend people to take the next step if they want to find out more. Uh, well, Oliver, it's been an absolute pleasure. I, I really, really, really enjoyed this chat. And um, yeah, I really wish you your, and your family the best and your brand all the very best. And keep on banging out those amazing podcast episodes. I'm loving them. And I feel like I'm traveling in Paris when, when I listen to you. What a lovely thing to say. Thank you so much. And uh, I really enjoyed this chat too. So thank you for having me on your show. Well, my guest today was Oliver G from Paris, France. Hopefully your love of Paris has grown your appreciation of France and all things Parisian through the amazing knowledge and clear passion that Oliver possesses. And I'd like to thank Oliver personally for being such a friendly, great guest and guy who's taken the time to share his knowledge about all things Paris and France. And I'm sure many of you today would have loved listening to him as well. So don't forget, please do check out his website, theearfultower.com and his award-winning podcast. It's a great, great listen. I'll leave it all in the show notes. If you've enjoyed today's episode, please do share it with a family member or friend who you think would get something out of it. And if you haven't already, please do leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And don't forget to subscribe if you haven't already. My name is Nate Ralph, and you've been listening to The Inquisitive Tourist.